0: Thanks for the introduction. I'm, I'm Paul Kelly and this is Aidan Doherty and we're here to talk today about our using of digital images in a, in behaviour assessments. Um, we're sort of also talking on behalf of Charlie, um, Jill and Anne who kind of formed the team in uh, the BHF HPRG or the British Heart Foundation Health Promotion Research Group um, who have taken an interest in, in this technology. Um, so, like Sally says, I'm a, a, a DPhil student with a particular interest in Active travel, uh, walking and cycling, as opposed to driving or or riding a bus. Um, And
1: I'm going to do a bit of a double act with Um, Aidan. And uh, so I'm a computer scientist by background, and I was given a talk last week in San Diego, and I was able to tell them all about my strange and funny Irish accent. In four errors is not as far away as things of left impression Somewhere knowledge instead of there. But um, so then my background is computer science, uh, and I did my PhD in computer science with a particular tool that we'll talk about called the sense SenseCam. Takes lots and lots of pictures to help us better understand people's behaviour. and We're going to talk about that here uh, in this uh, particular presentation. And uh, now I'm part of the British Heart Foundation group, and we're just looking at applying the technology and for public health purposes. And Paul, he just lead us into the introduction and on us here.
0: Okay, so um, like Aidan says, we our research group is interested in, in general public health um, and the health outcomes that uh, result from certain behaviours. Of course, health outcome that we're all interested in today is obesity, and we just got three uh, areas we're going to talk about today. Um, like I said, mine is, is travel behaviour. So I'm of course interested in, in the two pictures on the right-hand side, the walking and the cycling, um, because. If you, if you conduct this when you're trying to get places, uh, it, it can and will contribute to your physical activity recommendations, thus reducing your risk of, of the various uh, health outcomes that we know about and all-course mortality, what have you. Um, and of course, on the on the other side, if we can reduce traffic journeys, um, we, we start appealing to environmental groups and, and transport groups who want to reduce carbon emissions and, and reduce the pressure on our transport systems. So that's kind of why I particularly Uh, Have chosen to focus on travel. Um, Of course, there's sedentary behaviour, which is known to be an independent risk factor for the various uh, health outcomes that we're also interested in, of course, including obesity. This is a a slide sold from Charlie. And uh, finally, uh, nutrition, which probably don't need to persuade anyone in this room that what you eat is is in some way (coughs) related to risk of obesity. Why we choose to measure these things is, well, from pu- in public health, we use this, one of this, one of this model, which is one of the ones over the <laughs> uh, Behavioural Epidemiological Framework. And actually, it'll be, it'll be really interesting to get feedback from sort of the anthropologists in this room on, on this one. Um, but we believe if you can measure physical activity better upstream um, in terms of science, you can then identify the correlates or the determinants of the particular behaviour you're interested in, be it travel or sedentary or what you're eating. Which then allows you to to test your interventions and actually, ultimately, like Aidan said quite nicely, make people behave better, um, or or, or, or more how you you want them to. So this is why we choose to try and measure uh, these different behaviours. Of course, um, self-report is probably the one that is most commonly used in physical activity and and travel and, and nutrition in public health because it's easy to administer to large numbers of people but over about the last 10 years uh, the number of new technologies um, that has come along, if we go to this slide, shows that from about 2000 onwards they've started to really go for technology as the answer to try and measure stuff. Um, you see accelerometer is the accelerator there is the top line. So therefore, so well, how does the new technologies interact with the old self-report and you know, what, what can we learn as these things come along? Now, what you can find if you try and measure the same thing using self-report and one of these new technologies, accelerators, is a, quite a large disagreement in the results that come out. So uh, just two examples there from, from last year. If you're trying to establish the number of people meeting physical activity recommendations, which is 150 minutes of moderate intensity per week, you find if you ask people, 50% will tell you that they're doing enough. If you actually measure it with accelerometer, it's only five percent. So of course, this this, this presents a problem um, if you're trying to establish your correlates and your health associations and test how well your interventions are working. Uh, is well, what, what what should we use? What what, what, what techniques? So um, current measured ways of measuring or technologies that are available. Um, I don't know if any this is familiar to anyone in this room or. We've got pedometers and accelerometers and GPS are commonly used now, um, either in in conjunction with self report or as a replacement for. Um, But what's interesting is these are all objective measures of certain domains of your physical activity. So a pedometer will tell you how many steps you took during a day, but it won't tell you why you took them or when you took them or that sort of thing. An accelerometer will tell you how much your hip moved at various points throughout the day. But that won't necessarily tell you if that's because you dropped your, you know, your, uh, your accelerometer on the floor and got a big spike, or if you left it at home and you went for a run, and the researcher thinks that you're sitting around doing nothing apart from that, all that sort of thing. And then a GPS tracker will tell you where you went, um, but, it but it won't tell you like, uh, you know, necessarily why you did it or what mode. If you were walking in down Oxford High Street at four miles an hour, you were sitting in a car in heavy traffic. See, those are two very different behaviours. But the GPS won't allow to distinguish between the two.
1: Um Any other thing you want to say about up in here, so um, and yeah, so more or less we're talking, but this is what a typical GPS trace looks like, so we can obviously determine what's places a person was, and as Paul a very it says we don't really know what a person is doing. So imagine that we give this uh, GPS device to Charlie down there. We can't really tell what he's doing here. We see where he went. We can make a guess or an inference as to what he's doing. We don't really know. And then, similarly, if you went to the next slide there as well, um, we would see if we give him a GPS or a heart rate tracker, we can tell the intensity that he's doing things at, but we don't again exactly know what he is doing or, or, or what exactly is it. So is it he's in the gym and he's uh, know, lifting weights or is it he's out running of Australian rules or something like that. We just don't really know. And so really then, what, what the gold standard is, we want some sort of du- direct observation of people to see what they're doing. We also want to play God to see what is it that he is doing. So then, if we just gone forward with two slides there, and, and the whole technology domain since around the 1970s or so, people have been trying to build what we call wearable cameras then, so that more or less we can have devices and taking other pictures or video of what a person is doing. And if we went back to maybe the late 70s, we can see that guys were designing weird and wacky devices like this here, where you have laptops in your back with copper pipes sticking out and uh, with big, hideous head devices. So uh, obviously, you can't really give that to a lot of people there to wear, but uh, what is interesting is that over 20 years, people in the technology domain have been trying to miniaturize these devices and handle the storage of data. And it's only really around one to 10 years ago, or even less. Uh, the SensCamp here was developed in 2004. So this is a little wearable camera then that has the same functionality as those ones with copper wires hanging out your back and all. So people just put it around their neck like so, and they walk around with their everyday business. I'm gonna just pass this around so you can see what it feels like and, and things like that there. Um, so it's a, it's a camera that takes around three to five thousand photographs per day. On average, once every 20 seconds it takes an image. It's also semi-intelligent in how it takes an image because it has motion sensors on board, so there's a lot of movement. It says, don't take a picture because it's going to be blurred. Also there's a light sensor on board, so if you walk up towards the door, it's a small but darker. Open doors, door is a little hallelujah of light, a couple of tenths a second later then it says, let's take a picture because you're probably in a different environment. Also, then there's a passive infrared sensor on it, that's like your home burglar alarm that detects the presence of body heat. So someone walks in front of you it says, ah, there might have been someone who's walking in front of you, let's just take a picture in case it might be interesting. Finally, if nothing happens for 50 seconds, it says, let's just take a photograph anyways, Um, just for record's sake. So what you get is this huge volume of images, or we would call them life-log images, um, which can document what a person does. And then Paul there now he just flipped through the next couple of slides and, and just sort of explained some of the images that we'll get from that there. So so here we have uh, for example, um, what we are doing here where we're waiting at a bus stop, was it and someone is cycling past um, see and then we go to the next image here, we can see that we're walking past the bus stop up in high street <laughs> here, and we flip through another couple that's getting on the bus, being in the bus. So, for example, now this was Charlie wearing these devices, so now we've given his GPS and the hardware devices, don't really know what he's doing, but here we can see that he's walking along the street, and we can even see where he is and what type of environment it is around him there too. And if we just go, uh, So here we can see that he's driving, for example, uh, or, or riding on a bike, so you can very easily tell the behaviour from the picture then of what a person is doing, or at least we can better understand it compared to the accelerometer traces, the GPS or heart rate traces that we have. Um, and again here you can see we're on a busy underground as well, so if we had GPS we wouldn't pick up any signal in the underground. At least with the images then we can at least better tell a person's behaviour at least then we feel. But then one of the problems I guess is I said it took three to five thousand pictures per day. You're saying, hmm, that's a lot, and it's actually a million pictures per year. So how are we going to actually manage all that data? Well, what we do then, as so we went to the next slide, is if you have a day of 3,000 sense cam, images, if oh, I asked Rachel there, what did you do, Rachel, yesterday, you wouldn't list out 3,000 different things to me, you'd list out maybe a few events to me there. So what we uh, do then is we look at the accelerometer on board the sense cam, and we look for changes in activity. And what we find is that typically it's around 20 to 25 different types of activities people have in a day. Um, that's on, on uh, experiments we ran in Dublin. So then we can detect, instead of having look at 3,000 pictures, we then look at one representative picture in each of these 20 events. So now we can see a screen of 20 images and immediately see what I was doing the previous day. So first of all, that reduces our data down means it's less data for the researcher to look at. And then if we went on to the next slide there, we would see that um, what we want to do then is be able to associate different events with each other and see how similar they are. So I want to see the last time I was given a presentation in an environment similar to this. So how do I compare this event of 60 images to another event of 300 images? One thing I could do is sort of cross-compare all the images and look at the visual characteristics and then we'll see how similar they are. But from a computational point of view, that's really computationally intensive. A more uh, clever approach is to get an average representative image of this event compared to an average representative image of another event. And there's many sort of computational techniques that can even further uh, optimise that process there too. So this is stuff that I would have done for my PhD to manage all these images. And we'll on to the next slide as well. Uh, you can see that if this event does 60 images, which one of the 60 am I going to pick to be representative of that event? And what we, what we actually found in experiments done a couple of years ago was that if you pick around the middle 10 images around an event, and then you look for the image of the highest quality, so that's uh, more or less uh, trading off measures of what we call blur and salience than in images, and we get sort of the best quality or best looking image around the middle and then select that as the event that's representative of Paul and I giving the presentation here today. And uh, finally, I think on the last slide, we have, uh, again if I asked Rachel what she did, she still wouldn't list out 20 different things that she did yesterday. She'd probably list out three or four things that were probably more interesting or novel or unique with respect to what her normal lifestyle is like. So what we do is we look at how many faces we have in an image and that gives us an idea of how much social interaction we're having so if you have an event and you're talking to someone, it's likely to be more memorable than one where you're at the PC as normal, checking emails in the morning. And also what we do is, we look at how visually different is this environment with respect to what I do at this time of day. So by combining this event now, I'm having a lot of social interaction with you guys, and also I'm in a different environment. It's unlikely, am we remember this event at the end of today. So, that, so we more or less combine both of those together then to show the more interesting events to look at. And in the next slide there now we say, okay, so we can handle all the sense cam data, all the millions of images coming in but so what? What is the point of it all? Well Paul will he tell us about that there now we can skip this slide. Paul will tell us there about the public health applications that we have and, and one of them we, we particularly think is with respect to uh, with respect to the active travel there. So Paul will explain that. Yes, yeah, so I, I don't know if you guys are as baffled by the computer
0: science as I am. <laughs> But essentially, we, we, we had this problem that we described in the, in the measurement of, of travel behavior, that different devices tell you different things. Um, and then we came across Centacamp about two years ago. And that led us to Aidan and his research group, who has concluded demonstrated demonstrate. a very clever and therefore handling the data. So it occurred to us, well, what should, you know, we, we've got the device. We've got the, the experts who know how to help us handle tens and thousands of hundreds of thousands of images. So what should we do? Well, we decided, Well, let's investigate this, this apparent um, misreporting or, or inaccuracy on self-reported behaviour. Now, we chose to go for travel behaviour, um, partly because it's an important part of our research programme for the uh, reasons described, but also because ethically we realised that asking someone to take all these pictures might be quite interesting if you know they work in a hospital or in a school or something, so we thought, well, if we just focused on journey behaviour when they're outside of their house and outside of their workplace, this could be quite a nice. Starting point to, to place place the research before we try and build it to build it out. So we took this self-reported diary. This is the National Travel Survey. This is used by the National Centre for Social Research and it's used since about the nineteen seventies to collect travel data nationally um, in the United Kingdom. And they give all the results to the Department for Transport. Who then use it to make their funding and policy decisions on cycle networks and traffic lights and and trains and all this sort of thing. So it's a fairly significant survey. Um, and we, uh, what we were interested to do was see, is, is there an error on what people write down in the travel survey? And if so, where does it come from? Um, a sort of investigation of the literature suggests that some surveys might have systematic error. They might be badly designed, so they, they lead people to give the wrong an answer. Um, there might be differences in the way that Aidan and I approach a survey. I might round to the nearest 10 minutes, You might round to the nearest 15 seconds. Um, there might be differences between how we uh, approach a survey on a Monday morning as opposed to on a Friday afternoon when we can't be bothered. Um, it might be modal effects, that I'm quite accurate when I'm reporting my walking, but when it's a car journey I'm, I'm less interested. And then there might be other things we can't even think of. Uh, for example, we know from the sports psychology literature if you're really enjoying physical activity, time seems to fly by. Whereas if you're perhaps sitting in your car in a traffic jam, you're going to be like, oh, this is taking forever. So are these things going to have some sort of effect on the way you report your travel uh, journeys? So we've said a few basic research questions. Will people actually wear it? It's probably the most crucial one. So when we first started presenting this work, people were you know, they won't wear it. They'll just say no. Or they'll take it off, they'll lose it. So, This was the first question, can you actually use it in a public health setting? How does the data compare and can we use the data to try and identify where the error may be coming from? So this was a protocol, 20 uh, volunteers um, wearing it for one day, wearing device for one day of travel and completing a travel survey as per the uh, the protocol for the National Travel Survey. In answer to the first research question, they would wear it, which we were pleased with. So with our 20, of vol- course, volunteers, um, they were able to record 99 journeys um, from, from the 20 people compared to the 96 that were written down in the diaries. So we were pleasantly surprised um, at how well they performed. And when the percentage we know that there were 105 journeys um, from, from both measures. And uh, they both performed over 90%, which, which was good, I think, for, for, for both measures. So we were pleased with that answer. And then when it came to how did the data compare, well, this is what the uh, completed travel cycle looks like, and they tell you where they were going from and to and what mode they took and how long it, how long it took them in minutes. Uh, so we took every single journey and compared it to the, uh, the journey from the images. So they have the first frame of that cycle journey and the last frame. And because every image is time spent, we can calculate the nearest uh, 10 seconds, how long that journey lasts. And while they wrote 20 minutes in their travel diary, it was actually 12 minutes, 48 from, from start to end. This is the uh, correlation for all the journeys. So uh, reported journey time from the y-axis and camera journey time on the x-axis. And they correlated pretty well. Um, point, point 0.84, um, and above point 0.8 is an acceptable uh, validity in physical activity measurement. That's the, the accepted value. Um, so we were pleased with that. Um, but then what we did was a limits of agreement plot um, to try and investigate if there was actually uh, a bias present. Um, so what you've got here is uh, it's also known as a blind and you've got the difference between the two measures on the uh, y-axis and the average of the two measures on the x-axis. So if every journey agreed completely, there'd be zero difference, and they'd all appear on the, the, the difference equals zero line. As you can see, each uh, one of those triangles representing a journey um, there's a tendency to over-report and be above the line as opposed to under-report and the, the systematic bias on that one was 154 seconds. So that's two and a half minutes on average each journey was over-reported, which may not sound too, you know, too bad. And actually, when we took this back to people at the at that, that center, National Centre for Social Research, they were pretty pleased with this, that it wasn't 20 minutes or you know, half an hour or something horrible like that. So for them, this was a good result. But of course, the argument that we would make in physical activity research is um, 154 seconds per journey. Um, on average, it was three active journeys per day. So that's uh, 60 minutes per day that they tell us they're doing that they're not, or 54 minutes a week, or 36% of the recommendations. So you can see that if you're using this data to determine your health associations between walking and mortality, or, or, or stroke, or obesity, then you could start to misclassify people as active who actually aren't. So, even a small overreport can be interesting depending on how you're going to use, use the information. Um, and we were able to see that the overreporting varied by travel mode. So, walking was, was most accurate, followed by car, followed by bike. Uh, we don't know why this is yet, but this will be something to investigate um, when, we, when we repeat with a larger number of, uh, of uh, representative participants. Finally, were we able to look, use the images to find out why there may be some error on the And These are just two kind of hand-picked examples, but um, when there was an over-report of, a significant over-report of over 30%, we actually showed the images back to the participant and asked them questions about their journey and what happened. And we found that in one example, um, a guy had written 25 minutes in his diary for a 10-minute for car journey, but what he'd included was all the time loading the children into the car and retrieving lost lunch boxes and then looking for a parking space. And likewise, um, the example I showed you with the, the bike journey. When, uh, when we showed him the images, he remembered that he showed up to work and the bike racks um, were out of order that day because there was uh, maintenance work going on. And he had to go to the other side of the campus to find um, somewhere to put his bike, and therefore the whole process had taken him 20 minutes. So he was actually reporting the information that was relevant to him rather than the information that would be relevant to a physical activity researcher uh, like we are. So, this that was that's the study I've been working on with the um, uh, national travel survey. Hey, um,
1: do you want to talk about the, the other one? Uh, for GPS? Yeah. So, I, I guess in, as Paul said, like, we're very interested in physical activity uh, applications of this here. But I guess in presenting here, we want to show that actually, why your applications. and using this digital and wearable image technology there, and. A lot of people have been using, I guess, GPS devices in their research as we were shown earlier on. We couldn't really determine what the mode of behaviour was, um, and there's some limitations to GPS, as I put up in the slide there, and what's the next slide there, I guess? Well, this is Paul on a, on a cycle journey around Oxford there, and this is sort of a typical GPS trace. So again, we would be sort of inferring as to what he would be doing here. But then when Paul shows us a couple of images there, first of all, we can see, uh, I guess we go to the next image, and we can see he's on his bike there, first of all, so we know his mode of, 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 uh, of activity or, or what he is doing. And also, it's very interesting, we're trying to map the environment and to see what sort of factors might influence him. Uh, to be physically active. Generally what you would do, I guess, is maybe get a Google street view or something that we will show. Um, but this shows him sort of the conditions that he's in and the t- for the time that he was there as well. So we can see it was a nice sunny day here. It's a nice green space environment, nice wide cycle lane and all. So that helps us sort of characterize the type of environment he's in uh, for, for the type of activity that he's doing as well there. And we'll look at the next slide, I guess. Um, uh, also, people use accelerometers, as, we, as Paul showed in the graph earlier on, there was a big spike in, in usage of those since the year 2000. So so lots of uh, researchers now using accelerometers to determine how much activity people are, are, are doing, basically. And again, when we see an accelerometry spike during the day, we're not really sure if did they drop it, the device, or did they give it to their dog to run around with. Or, or what? So, then if we go to the next slide here, I guess as Paul is showing us there now, we can now associate with certain spikes what image or activity a person is doing or what type of behaviour they're involved in surrounding that spike. And it needn't be just accelerometer data, it could be any other type of data you have, whether it be uh, CO2 sensors that people are using to map the, the air quality the environment around them. You can see what type of uh, pictures and what type of environment there might be higher levels of CO2 or whatever other type of data source you're trying to sense as well, Um, and I guess we'll go to the next slide after this one here. Uh, We'll see that it's very interesting when you sort of combine three devices together. So this is now a physical activity, hats on again. Generally it's regarded that if you get a series of zero values in an accelerometer over 20 minutes, it's regarded that you've left it off your pocket and it's sitting on the table. So if I take mine out and leave it sitting there now for 20 minutes people say, okay, he's not wearing it. Then we've also got this idea called sedentary behaviour, where people are sitting all the time, and to me this is sort of a scary one, so sort of there's some evidence coming out that even though I might be very active in the evenings, so I'm sitting all day, I still have got independent risk factors for a whole multitude of, of, of different types of disease, and here we see an incidence where there was sort of 20 minutes of what appeared to be non-wear time, but then when we went and looked at the pictures associated with that. You can see I was sitting down for, I think I actually Paul wearing this device, so he's sitting down and having a cup of coffee of myself there. And what's very interesting, I guess, is that the pictures then can reclassify this, what we originally thought was a time we weren't wearing the device to actually be an episode of sedentary behavior or about of sitting behavior, in this case specifically. Um, and it's also really nice that you can see exactly where we're at too from the GPS trace. And an interesting point then um, is that, as we can see here, the GPS trace goes with math when you're indoors as well. So it could have been that Paul was doing shuttle runs there at that place, we just didn't really know. But again, by having the pictures there, we can better establish the type of behaviour. And um, I guess we really we them, then when you triangulate them with the accelerometer, we can see the intensity of the behaviour there too, with respect to the hip movement, as accelerometers traditionally measure pretty well. And I guess we move on to the next slide there we would see that um, it's very interesting. I think Paul explained this really well, this hard figure. So Yeah. I, mean, I think you're actually right, It's the triangulation um,
0: that when we got from this slide is where you've got the, the accelerometry and the GPS, you've got the objective measure. But what the pictures allow us to do is is look more into the behaviour and the sort of the story behind what was going on. So prior to the image, you've just got the, the intensity, like Aiden says, and the location. But once you've got the picture of someone in a cafe, you, you start to get the story and the determinant of why, that, why those behaviours before and after may or may not have happened. So we're like, like okay, Aiden says, well, you know, let's look at the environment then. So these are four pictures of me walking, and on a GPS or an accelerometer, they'd all look the same. Um, there'd be no distinguishing factors to tell you anything about them. Um, you know, you just have that objective intensity of hip movement or location. But once you've got the images, you're starting to get more uh, information that, that may or may not be useful. We don't, we don't know at this stage. Kind of this is why it's great to come present this to you. Um, you know, top left, I'm walking in a nice leafy area up in Headington. Top right, I'm on the high street and it's busy and there's pedestrians around. Would that be important to elderly people who you're asking to go out walking more? Um, bottom left, there's obstructions on the pavement. So if you're a young mother with a pushchair, and you going be able to get down that area? And then bottom right, you're in London, leafy, it's nice, white pavements. You know, is that going to be conducive? Is that, are you going to feel different when you, when you go walking? Uh, for example, we know that the, the actual physiological response to walking is in some extent determined by the environment. Um, you, you get lower stress and anxiety levels if you're surrounded by green space than if you're surrounded by concrete. But conversely, People walk quicker in these concrete areas, um, maybe because they're scared or not really enjoying it, or because they're rushing to the office. But if they're walking quicker, are they getting more benefit from the higher intensity activity? So these images, are, like you said, the environmental information is really good. Um, and uh, like Aidan said, uh, you, you, with the street view, with these two cycling pictures, uh, these are both from SenseCam. On the left, you can see I'm, I'm getting overtaken by someone, I'm trying to avoid a bus, and someone pulling out. On the right, you can see that it's uh, sort of rainy and uh, there's not so much traffic around. Whereas if you compare back to what you would have got from the street view, you can see they're telling quite a different story in terms of traffic levels and, and what it's actually like to be there um, on the handlebars at the time. So again, you can go back to the participant and you get this recall effect um, when it gets to be with the experience. Um, and then the same one there on the northern bridge, just it, it gives you a slightly different Picture because
1: you're going to talk about the weekly. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, in this moment. <laughs> That's the next one. And it's the slide here, actually. So, uh, I guess um, the other application our group's interested in is sort of uh, in terms of uh, nutrition as well and, and food behaviour, food purchasing behaviour, and even uh, I guess the type <laughs> of food people are eating. And it's interesting, and we'll go to the next slide. It's sort one of the early studies with the SenseCam device was in the memory sciences domain. Um, and well they're since claiming that was the original intention of sense all altogether. I think at the start of sort of a bit of a geek's paradise to try and record as much data as we could. But, uh, but the the very interesting sort of study here is that uh, they're working with a lady in the early stages of Dementia. Um, so what did you do yesterday, Grammy? I can't really remember, but uh, and and sort of so this is a person with particularly bad memories, this is she was at a wedding on Saturday, and then you queue her on Sunday, and how much do you remember that wedding yesterday to say I might remember three or four different events in that, or we'll say five or six, and then you hear again on three days later, hey remember that when we're at on Saturday, and she's, how much can you tell me about it, and she might remember able to recall between three or four different events in then. And then five days later, we ask her, how much do you remember from that wedding? And she might only remember one item from that wedding. So it might have been you know, the, the roast beef we had for dinner or something like that. I can't really recall anything else from that wedding. So traditionally what people would do is, guess what we went to the next slide, is you would give them a written diary. So then on the Sunday, then, when she lists out the six or seven events she remembers from the wedding, she would then sort of sit down with her husband or partner and you would go through the diary that she maintained at the end of that day and you ask her two days later she remembers the same amount. Then five days, so after the second you year on the Tuesday, you read through the diary again. And then week two on the Thursday, and how much do you remember then? So you can actually start to remember some more items because it's by reading the diary that sort of helps train memory a small bit or it helps her retain the memory of that wedding she was at, for example. But then I guess you go out to a month afterwards or two months or three months. The weapons sort of faded away from memory. And I guess the next slide here now, Paul's going to show, is like the really interesting one. Is that when you cure, or when you see it's access into the visual images in the sense cam, they're very powerful cues to autobiographical memory recall. Yes. Is that any different to taking a photograph of a wedding? Yes, well, that's actually a very good question. So I can't say yes. I suspect it might be yes. Um, they didn't use, I guess, well, I'm making up the event, I've been at a wedding, so it, was, it was more mundane events than that actually they used it for. But uh, that's actually a very good question. There is a theory that, I guess, as we encode events, um, I sort of, as I encoding this event, I see this perspective here, uh, rather than say, from this perspective, someone else has taken a photograph. Uh, and then the, the nearer that the cue is to try and re-access that memory, so then if I get a picture that's from this perspective, it's easier for my brain then to, to try and recall this information I'm well, more are uh, constantly reinventing it, so with every yeah. reproduction, we're reinventing it. Yeah, well, that's right, because, yeah, encoding is another form of, uh, or sorry, retrieval is another, f- another mm-hmm. form of encoding. Is it, um, as they say. Um, but I guess the interesting thing is, in this case here, what we can see is that there does appear to be a, a benefit in having access to these images. And I guess when you're taking manual photographs, it becomes tiresome after a while. You're never going to take, I guess, a manual photograph every two or three minutes. So it's by having the benefit of this device just hanging around your neck and you're going about your everyday activities, it is automatically taking them. And I guess people in the neurosciences and the cognitive neuropsychology domain and all, they're looking into those questions in much more detail. But I guess from our point of view, we're interested in there appears to be something in this and obviously they need to do much larger trials and all there to quantify the benefit, if any, there is in this, but some of the initial evidence is sort of encouraging there, we would feel. So as we can see that actually the person is able to recall after viewing the images multiple times, they're able to remember more details of the event than they were on the day afterwards. And I guess, again, a devil's advocate question is, well, if they're doing that for every event, would it be just get would they get overwhelmed? And the answer is, we don't know. And yeah, that's for people in the memory sciences to. Like yeah, this, um, because we have a guy in Dublin who's been in the sense camp for four and a half years. He's got seven million photographs of his life. And what we did then was sort of memory tests along with a, a memory clinic in Leeds with him. And we found. So like 30% of the events. He just had no recollection of at all, even giving him access to the GPS of where you're at, plus the images of what you're doing and the images of the day before and after. He still can't really recall that event. That's just the thing that we can't remember everything, basically. We have to, as you say, filter stuff out. Um, but where this is interesting, we feel, is that it has the potential to be a very powerful context-reading statement to him. Because what was interesting in this case then too, is that people are able to remember other details that aren't in the images. So they might remember things like, I remember the song I was listening to in my iPod at that time, and, and stuff like that. So it sort of contextually puts the person back in the situation. So we went on to the next couple of slides here now. We would see that if we had a person wearing this here, what we really love to do then is say, here you are in what might be waitrose, and you were eyeing up uh, the dairy milk bars, and say so at the end that you purchased the Snickers instead of the Dairy Milk bar, why was that? So we feel that this is very useful to prompt the participant to try and put them back in the situation of being in the shop and the environment and say, what are you thinking at this time? Why did you purchase the Snickers instead of the Mars bar? Or why did you purchase the Guardian instead of the Telegraph because of what might be on the front page? Um, so, and actually people in sort of market research are very really interested in this too, but what we're in sort of guess is the whole idea of trying to understand food purchase behaviours in these cases here, and I guess pause them through another couple of images and we just go through the next few, yes. um, so we can see, you can more or less get an idea of what the participant is doing, and in this case we're not as interested in trying to measure their behaviour, but in trying to place them back in that situation then to help us for our qualitative analysis then so to try and prompt the participant to get a better quality of information and we feel there's a lot of potential in that there and we're, and we're currently testing that with Jill and Anne there now where we're doing a, a study with uh, school kids on their journey to school and um, trying to look at their food purchasing opportunities and why they try and purchase certain types of food and not others there. So we'll be looking at that in more depth here over the coming weeks and months of data collections just started this week in on project. Um, so I guess I'm going to just go through the next couple of images and we'll see how much time we have here. Um, because I guess one of the questions you're going to ask is we've got around three or four minutes here now to the end is, well, okay, some of the things here do appear promising, but how are we going to ever apply this at a population level so I can't really look through 200 people's SenseCam images event by event by event. So what we're doing is actually, as well as that, we're developing these automated activity recognitions. So we've got a sort of a nice browser here and, and we can manually annotate at the minute when people are driving, for example. And if we want to the next two slides, um, the next slide. And is that the interesting thing is, if you look at the accelerometer tracing board SenseCam, that you can see there's a difference when a person is sitting or standing compared to the next slide where, where they might be walking. So you can see there's a different trace inherent in that. Or the next slide as well, you can see there's a, an even different trace or pattern inherent in the driving images. And if we went to the next slide as well, the interesting thing is, well, SentisCam, you've also got images here too. So for each and every image, you can pull out different properties that represent that. If we just skip on to the next image for a minute. You can see there's things such as the colours inherent in an image. So, you can see this image here, there's a lot of red in it, and another image here has got different forms of blue and yellow in it, and you can represent those in terms of histograms and vectors, and that's what a lot of people do in the image processing community, and my background is sort of quite close to that. And there's also things that we can describe, it doesn't show so well here, the different edges inherent in an image. And if we went back to the previous slide there Paul, we would see that there's different colours inherent in a grass image compared to one where there's hands present or a non-grass image. Or there's different textures uh, inherent in maybe an eating image compared to a not eating image. So what we did was we went through 95,000 photographs and we manually annotated them for across 27 different types of activities don't worry so much about the activities here in a minute, because that was computer scientists doing that, and as computer scientists we aren't very good at human behaviour and stuff like that, but but the interesting thing is that the approach of doing this would be the same as if you define a new type of activities, and what we did then for those 95,000 images, we extracted all the colours and textures and edges out of the images, and started to run it through machine learning programs, and to see what patterns are inherent an eating image versus a not eating image, or an indoors image versus an outdoors image. And we've got different sort of accuracy scores here at the minute, and sort of the typical accuracy level at the minute is around 65% in terms of the of the computer being able to automatically identify these 27 different types of activities. And we're working on improving that there. So we just sort of step through to the next slide or two. And to explain how this process would work in better detail is, you've got a set of images then, and then we go to the next one, we would see that we extract the visual features from those and then what we did was we get our 95,000 labelled examples and we put them through these machine learning codes and that then helps us identify automatically when you pick in a new image then, it takes out the features for that and sees which one of the 27 is that nearest to, oh it's an indoor image for example, um, and to show some Work notes, again, this is done by computer scientists and not very well validated because a lot of times we do something on two or three people, then we run off to the next interesting problem to try and solve so that's just the way computing works times for better or worse. Um, but what we had here was five people at first. And we automatically extracted uh, their, sort of their, their lifestyle activities or a signature of their activities and looked how different they were in some different things. So we say user one had many more steering or being inside vacuum images than everyone else, and that's because he was only one of the five that drove into work regularly. User number two was the hungry so-and-so in the group. He was eating more than everyone else. And despite my appearance, that was actually me, because I'm just one of those people that I have to eat every two hours or I just get incredibly grumpy. User three, he has more views of external vehicle, and the reason for that was he's the only one of us that was cycling and to work with the time, so he's getting all these views of cars and buses on the outside. User number four back in Dublin's a post he's the most studious person I know there, so we sort of we know pretty much that he would be a person that does read a lot. And user five, he was holding the phone more. Why was that? Well, he was actually doing an experiment on, a, on an Android phone at the same time, trying to code it up so it mimics the capabilities of the sense cam. So He was holding on his phone a lot of the time, so that's where we got a lot of images like that. So it's a very soft validation that, but it just shows the future potential. And what we did in the next slide was, we give it to a few more people in Dublin. So we give it to 30 people then, and we got a million minutes of daily living from those 30 people. And we tried to, again, being computer scientists, we just... Them into groups that willy nilly almost, but we have different types of groups like people who are office workers, even a few retired people, and um, we call regular life loggers. You can view that as geeks basically, people who are sense can all the time swear <laughs> by it, uh, and then sort of more normal researchers as normal computer scientists researchers go. But if we go to the next uh, slide, we can see different things again. We notice this life loggers, this geeky group, they have lots of inside vehicle events. And we think the reason for that is that they were just more willing to wear it most of the time. We need to investigate that more. Um, we're, not sh- we're not exactly 100% sure what the answer, for, or what the reason for that might be. But we can see things such as a retired group of people, they have more meeting time, and we found that that was just because they have sons or daughters coming along to visit them, and they just spend sort of time sitting down, you having a cup of tea, you having a big chat, and, and being retired, I guess they weren't in such a rush there, so they had more time to be meeting with people. And then, I guess, probably being you know, an older generation, they have less screen-based time as well, so they're just not as much into their computers as, I guess, our generation are there. Um, and I guess we move on to the next slide. What gets really interesting then is, imagine when these automated processes get more accurate, up to 90% or something like that. What you can then, see, what you can then possibly do is see, when a group of people are involved in eating activities, and it needn't be eaten be any other type of activity if you want as well. So we can see that, for example, the office group of workers, they have their cup of coffee at half ten in the morning. Then they might have lunch around one in the afternoon, and they're sort of like nibbling the odd time between now and then. But then when they go home at half seven, they might be having their dinner. Then they go off and watch the Champions League match in the evening time, and finally then they'll have their supper at ten o'clock. So you might be able to tell the patterns of when particular groups of people are eating. This was particular patterns for our groups, and one thing we found, you might agree with this or not, is that the researcher group, this uh, green line here, doesn't really have any pattern to it, so we just discovered researchers can eat any time of the day at all, they don't have any pattern at all that we could get out of them in terms of eating there, so and we sort of half agreed with that, looking at the people we didn't wear it they could be just Random lifestyle, something that people working at the office of till 11 o'clock at night, but then they might be at 1 o'clock the next day. So, and we went to look at the last slide here. We didn't see when people look at just another example when they look at screens. Um, so, this is interesting for the secondary behavior, sitting <laughs> second time, either they're on their laptop or they're watching the television. And for the regular group of office workers, again, we saw that they come in the morning, check the emails at 9 a.m., might have different meetings during the day. Uh, check the emails again just before we went home at 5 o'clock and uh, finally then uh, in the evening time then they probably watch the football match at 9 o'clock during the, during the week at, uh, in the evening time. So again you can see different times when groups are exposed to different types of behaviours and that might be interesting for, for any of your own research I and mean, they're trying to possibly use another device to try and understand what, a, what a, uh, the behaviour is for a group of participants. And I think that might be pretty much us, so just in conclusion, we feel this device, it has the potential to be a very powerful uh, aid or instrument to validate what type of behaviour a person or a group of people are involved in. Um, and, and more or less, yeah, I guess the rest will summarise is summarised in text, but that's sort of our main take home message, is that this device is a really exciting device to use uh, in behavioural measurement. And finally in the last slide is, this isn't the work of just Paul and myself there, you can see that the whole list of faces. So uh, so the Research Centre back in Dublin, we have, I counted out there last week, we have 18 people actively working on the computing science challenges of managing all the data, trying to automatically recognise activity and, and things like that. And in our own group we've got obviously Jill and Hans sitting here in the audience. Um, who, who've helped us out a lot. And we also are supported by Microsoft Research. They film Paul's D film. Um, so we work along with Steve and Emma there. And we also have uh, support from Alan Bater and, and Teesside University. So it was really as a whole team effort in this year. And so Paul and myself. We're lucky to present that. And thanks for your attention, folks. Okay, thank you very much.